seated. We're um, continuing our study of the Catechism with, with question 51 today. So uh, we'll be looking at Mark 7 in a little bit for our scripture reading. We've been looking at the second commandment now for a couple of weeks. This is our third week on it, I believe. And uh, so I want to begin by confessing question 49, which is the first question that deals with the second commandment. It simply asks us, which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I introduced this commandment to you a couple of weeks ago by showing you how it is different than the first commandment, because sometimes that is confusing to people. In short, the first tells us to have no other gods, and the second tells us not to worship the true God by images. Now, of course, it would be wrong to worship other gods, whether by images or not by images. But you basically are breaking the first commandment if you worship other gods, whether by images or not by images. What is forbidden in the second is to make an image of the Lord our God and to worship that. So it's an image of the true God that, you've made, that you have made. And uh, that puts it in a little different context, doesn't it? We then considered after that the overall principle that is found in this commandment, namely that we are to worship God only as he has commanded, not to add to what he has appointed and not to take away from it. And we call that the regulative principle of worship sometimes. Um, as the Lord says in Deuteronomy twelve thirty two, where the context of the whole chapter is about worship and particularly about worshiping God at the temple that he appointed for his people after he brings them into the land. It's looking forward to that time. It tells them that they shouldn't do, imitate what the pagans do. And then he concludes that by saying, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. It's very plain, isn't it? Then last week we looked at question 50. So let's also confess the answer to question 50 together. And that is, what is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Now, as I had already spoken to you about the principle of doing what God commands the first week, then my focus last week was on what God actually calls us to do when we gather for worship today. Now that we're in the new covenant, which of course our worship is different than it was under the old covenant. We looked at the brief summary of what we are given to do in our public worship in Acts 2.42, where we're told of the four basic elements of public worship. 
that were established of the apostles who were required, of course, to establish the worship that God commanded and not anything additional to that or less than that. In particular, the four elements are the, that we're to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers. I urge you to continue steadfastly in these things the way that the early church did. It is our duty not only to do these four things, but to do them eagerly and with a diligent heart and a consistency before the Lord who has saved us. If we would simply give ourselves wholeheartedly to the worship that God has commanded us, then all would be well. The problem is, is that we don't. Sadly, it's one of the most common faults of the church in all ages to either add or take away from these simple, pure, and beautiful elements of worship that God has given us. The Bible record shows us the sad history of how Israel constantly either added or took away from what God had commanded in worship. And it is striking to see how rare it was ever for them to do strictly what God had told them to do. They always thought they needed to be inventive or something or to uh, adopt something that others were doing. We have seen that even though they were told not to worship the Lord at the high places, that out of all of Israel's and Judah's kings, over 40 of them, in fact, there were only three that did not allow this additional worship at the high places. It was a very popular thing that everyone seemed to find uh, useful or something. I don't know what it was, what their reasons were, but uh, they did this um, under the administration of all of the kings except those three, David, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And though we only have one generation of biblical history where we can learn about what happened with New Testament worship, of course, we can learn about it from history, but where we actually have the apostles addressing people about what they're doing under inspiration. We only have, actually, you know, it's not even near a full century. It's just like half a century. And uh, we find that even while the apostles who had set up biblical worship were still alive, that they had to confront the very congregations that they had started. Because already they were perverting God's worship. They were adding to things or taking away from the simplicity that God appointed. As might be expected, human additions and innovations to worship have certainly continued ever since in the church. So this is not a thing that never happens, that people add to God's It happens more frequently than not. If you were to make your way around to different churches today in our city or anywhere, you would find a huge variety of worship practices. And some people would say, oh, well, that's kind of a good thing, you know, different, different ways for different people. Uh, so much so that it would appear to you that there must not be any instruction, particularly that God has given us about how we're to worship, that everyone is just do whatever they find useful for them or whatever they find to be right in their own eyes. Now, it would be fine if uh, the variety that we're talking about was variety of different languages. Like God has told us that if you know, we should worship in our own language and that, that kind of variety would be fine. Or even if it was the style of the architecture of the building or something like that, that's not something that 
You can worship in a barn. You can worship in a building like this or whatever. But the travesty is that you would find differences in that the various churches have added or taken away to what God has instituted for worship. It's a variety that comes from breaking one of God's commandments, the second commandment. So today we're going to look at some of these violations of the second commandment. Last week we looked at what is uh, required of us today, and uh, this week we're going to look at things that are commonly done today that God has prohibited. So let's confess together our answer for the, to the question this week, uh, question 51. Question 51, what is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. For our scripture reading, I've chosen the passage where Jesus speaks against traditions that we add to God's worship. It's Mark chapter 7. And uh, this was going on in his day, even, against, even, even by the people who were considered to be the very zealous Orthodox people. They had additions to the worship of God. So listen as I read this to you. This is uh, God's word. It's Mark 7, beginning in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. So they had a little, uh, a little group that had come to address Jesus. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the word of God? No, holding the tradition of the elders. Okay, so they're, they've deviated from the word. They're doing something extra here. God had given them certain ceremonial washings, but they said, we're going to do some extra ones because we're especially close to God, I guess, or something. I don't know what their thought was. Verse 4. When, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes answered him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So you see, they're actually accusing Jesus of doing something wrong, because he was breaking the tradition of the elders, of the fathers, when in fact they were the ones who some, those fathers had added to God's worship. So verse 6, he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have 
handed down. And many such things you do. May the Lord then bless the reading of his holy word. We will end at that point. You can see here how the problem of adding to the worship that God appointed is described in this passage. The issue is actually raised, as we saw, by those who had added these man-made traditions. They are the ones that got offended. Often those who do this feel superior about their ancient practices that they follow, and they look down on those who violate the tradition of the fathers. They claim that long practice in the church sanctions these practices, and that those who do not engage in them are violating the unity of the church. They're disrupting the church by not going along with the Uh, the traditions that have been handed down by the Father. They're breaking up the unity of the church by their refusal to conform. The fact is that the ones who are breaking up the unity of the church are the ones who are following the traditions of man because they're breaking away from their Savior and what he appointed. He did not appoint those traditions. You can see in our text that they are questioning Jesus himself as to why do your disciples transgress? They're doing wrong. The tradition of the fathers. The, the particular practice they were referring to is the additional ceremonial washings that they had added to the washings that God had appointed in the Old Covenant. Under the worship of the Old Covenant, there were washings that God made f- for the people to do until the coming of Christ, when uh, we only have one ceremonial washing now, and that would be baptism. But over the years, many of the Old Testament church people had added all kinds of additional washings. God had not appointed these. They were traditions of men. You saw how it said that they would um, baptize their couches and everything else. The word, um, I think it's in Mark or Matthew 1, they use actually the word baptize. And it says that, you know, they would baptize their these copper vessels and these cups and pitchers and couches, everything, they were cleansing with water. You know, that was their, their big thing. But uh, these traditions have been around for such a long time. These fellows thought that Jesus and his disciples were wrong for not doing it. Jesus launches right into them with a very, very strong words of rebuke. He begins by calling them hypocrites in verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, who had formerly accused them of drawing near to God with their lips when their heart was far away. They were busy following all the commandments and traditions of men. And because they were so busy with these human traditions, then they were neglecting the things that God wanted them to do. That is so often the way it is. As soon as you start following the commandments of men, you're putting on a show before men rather than considering what God wants. You've shifted your focus from trying to please the Lord to trying to please men or perhaps please yourself. Sometimes this can be done to impress others in the church. Sometimes it can be done to try to impress unbelievers. And not always with bad intentions, many times with good intentions. In the day of Jesus, it was often done to get honor from the eyes of men. You would be admired 
for your careful observance of all of these extra ceremonies. And they were. Look at that religious person. Look at how clean he keeps himself. He stays away from those Gentiles. You know, it was a day when people tried to impress those in authority in an effort that, you know, they were really zealous for God in this way. In our day, it's sometimes the case that leadership will add to God's worship in an effort to make worship more appealing and more attractive to people that are outside the church so that they won't lose members and to unbelievers so that they will be attracted to come to church. I told you about the fellow I saw that had uh, a whole huge stage of the church made into a a kind of a a big bathtub, a pool with water that was deep enough for this little boat that he had to float in. And he was there floating around in this boat and preaching out of the boat. And then they uh, had rain start falling down from above and and they had all this stuff set up and then lightning bolts and thunder and all this stuff. And he was talking about a storm and, you know, just just going on like that. And uh, this was very appealing. It's a huge church. Obviously, they have a whole lot of money. They've got a lot of people that are involved in contributing to this. But you see, in both cases, it's hypocrisy because your efforts are aimed at doing what pleases people when you're supposed to be seeking to please God who sees the heart. Now, I'll say that sometimes when people do things like that, then they are not necessarily being deliberately and totally hypocritical. Sometimes they're thinking that this would please God if they do this because it would attract more people to Christ or it would, you know, whatever it is. A lot of times it is done with good intentions, but it is a kind of hypocrisy because the focus has shifted from what has God asked me to do, what is God's will, to what will please people here. Now, Jesus also shows in very practical terms how following man-made traditions draws us away from doing what God has actually appointed. As it says in verse 9, he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. In their case, he gives a particular illustration with their tradition of dedicating financial gifts to God. That's what it's talking about when it says Corban. Uh, once they had dedicated their resources, their money or whatever, to God, that it was money that was set apart to be given to God. Uh, maybe they had an investment or something like that that they had dedicated to him. But then when their own parents were in need, they would tell them, oh, oh I can't help you because my money is tied up. My money is dedicated to God. It's Corbin. So if I gave it to you, I would be violating my vow that I had given this to God. They set aside God's commandment to honor their parents so they could get the honor that would come from dedicating a large gift to the church rather than handing something to their parents that no one would particularly know about. And all the while, they felt that they were pleasing God. Perhaps even because everyone sees how much I love God because I gave all of this money to God. And you know, very often you see where people want to get their name on that I gave this to the church. I see, see what I did. In our day, a common example of human additions taking away from God's appointed worship can be seen with choirs or worship teams. As soon as these are added, you have this special music going on. And so then the service starts to get uh, longer than people want. So the preaching and prayers are reduced so that you can have more time for the performances to go on. And then you can see the long-term results in the traditional churches that are so full of ceremonies 
that they just have like a little five or ten minute homily for the sermon and that's it. And of course, in the New Testament, we're, we're see, we see that the preaching of the word is the primary thing that is uh, done in the worship of God. It's emphasized all through. So we need to benefit from Jesus' strong words to these Pharisees in two ways. First, if we're among those who have turned our eyes and hearts to thinking about what pleases us or other people in worship, and if we're using what pleases us as the benchmark for evaluating what we do or don't do, then we need to repent and turn back to God and say, what does God want? Jesus' words need to strike us hard because they are strong words and we need to be humbled by them. If, on the other hand, we're being accused of claiming disunity of causing disunity in the church because we refuse to follow persuasive human or pervasive human innovations in worship, we need to take comfort that Jesus is very displeased with those who oppose us. So that's the other way we would look at it. In other words, don't be intimidated when people say, well, you shouldn't do that. No, that's not right. You don't have to. No, it's like we're, we're looking to do what God has said. Uh, Jesus' words in Mark 7 still are important for us today. Okay, now let's consider some of the ways that worshipers add or take away from what God has commanded today, in worship today. We will begin with the actual use of graven images and likenesses in worship. The Roman Catholic Church has long used graven images of Jesus And the Eastern Orthodox Church has long used pictures of Jesus and also images of the saints and of Jesus. Some Protestants have also incorporated these into their worship services, their churches. We might also mention the use of movies about Jesus or dramatic presentations that feature Jesus or even dramatic readings of scriptures where attempts are made to imitate his voice and his expressions and intonation. This is the very thing that is expressly forbidden in the second commandment. We are expressly forbidden to make images or likeness of the Lord our God. But those who do argue that this is not a violation because of the fact that Jesus was indeed a man and therefore that he can be portrayed in art in these ways because we're not portraying him in his deity, but in his humanity. Objection can be raised to that on two grounds. First, as the prophet Habakkuk tells us in Habakkuk 2.18, a molded image is a teacher of lies. Images portray things about Jesus, lots of things that are quite additional to God's word. There is no way that an actor or a painter or a sculptor can properly represent the facial expressions or the tone of voice, if it's a dramatic presentation, that Jesus used in various circumstances in which we find him. It is one thing to give us a, 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 a truncated picture of a fallen human being in a movie, but it is sinful and harmful to give us a distorted picture of Jesus an impression that will powerfully stick in our minds. Like, for instance, imagine trying to make a picture of Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple with his whip. What was his facial expression? What was his demeanor? What, did he, what was his voice like as he spoke? 
we know only what is revealed to us, we're adding something of our own imagination and that imagination, whenever people watch a movie or something of that happening, that will stick in their minds whenever they read that passage and forever they have that view of Jesus that didn't come from God. It came from some actor and it could be very different. You've seen the movies where Jesus goes around like a guy on LSD from the 60s or whatever. He's kind of got his eyes are kind of spaced out and he, he looks like he's kind of off somewhere and he walks around and talks to people and stuff. And then you see the other ones where he's kind of going around, kind of, kind of smiling and laughing and stuff. Like, I, 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 we can't do that. We, we don't know. We, we aren't supposed to add or take away. I know that on my part, I obtained an image of Christ in my mind from movies and things like that when I was a, a child and uh, sort of had that, that picture of the, the guy with the glazed over eyes. That, uh, that was sort of the one that, that came to me. The second objection is much simpler. That God has not commanded us to portray Jesus by images or likenesses. So it's wrong to do so. We can say what problems it causes, and we can debate about that. And people say, well, it could be helpful too, and we, we can go back and forth forever and ever. But what's the bottom line? God never, he, he told us not to add, and it's an addition. So that ends the debate. Even if someone wants to say the second commandment expressly and only prohibits making images of his divinity and not his humanity, the principle that we derive from the second commandment and have established from passages like Deuteronomy 12 teaches us that we're only to do what God commanded in worship. So he never told us to make pictures and images of Jesus in our worship. So we're transgressing if we do. So if anyone wants to use images to teach about Jesus, we would have to ask where God has instructed us to use images to teach about Jesus. If someone can point to an apostolic example or a command to make Jesus known or to to worship him by making images of him, then we should do it at once. But if we can't find any such, then we should desist. If there's no divine command, then it is an addition of our own to the worship of God and ought to be objected to. Instead, the Lord has been pleased, you see, to reveal himself through his written word, which also commands us to preach that word. Next, we might consider prayers to angels and to saints. Even if we say that we're not actually worshiping them. You know, if you ask people, oh, no, we're not really worshiping them. Uh, we might bow down before them, but we're, we're just looking to them for help or asking them to pray for us. Many people find comfort offering up prayers to the Virgin Mary or to one of the saints or looking to Michael for protection or something. There are testimonies how people have been helped by such prayer. You know that, oh, you know, yeah, you see, look what happened. I've got a story that I can tell about that. Or I was greatly comforted or I was rescued from danger when I called on one of these saints. And indeed, we're told in the Bible that angels are sent from God as ministering spirits to to help God's people. So why should we not call upon those that God has given to help us? Just as we might call on our parents, if a child have parents to help them, and they call on them to help them and deliver them, and, uh, or you call on an elder in a church or a deacon that God has appointed to help. So why not then those that have lived well on the earth that are now departed, why can't we call on them? The answer is quite simple. Because God has never instructed us to direct our prayers to departed saints. 
Nowhere has he done that. Or to angels. Once again, we must ask where God commanded us to do this. Where is there an authorized example of this anywhere in Scripture? There's some unauthorized example of calling on the dead, but there's no authorized sanctioned examples where it's approved. In fact, such practices are condemned. We're not to consult with the dead. And in Colossians 2.18, we're warned against worshiping angels. But most of all, we're never instructed to do this by God in his worship. God's method in using angels to minister to us is not that we should try to, pr- try to pray to them, but that we should pray to him, our Father in heaven, who then dispatches the angels as he pleases. It is up to him to direct them, and it is up to us to make our appeals to him. So we need to get our jobs right. We're to pray to God. God dispatches angels to do the things that he wants to do. He wants us to draw near to him, to know him, to come to him as our merciful father and to give him the glory when he answers our prayers. Philippians 4, 6 is the divine imperative. Let your requests be made known to God. That is his will for us. Psalm fifty fifteen is the divine invitation. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You can see how calling upon angels and saints is a vain tradition that takes away from this duty to call on the Lord. We're commanded to call on the Lord, but instead we're calling on saints and angels instead. You can't do both at once. Our problem is that we do not look to him as often as we should. Does anyone look to God as often as you should? The last thing we need is other substitutes to pray to. Like other substitutes that we can't see that are in heaven or whatever, and we're going we're gonna to pray to them? Why? Why would we do that? He does tell us to pray for one another, so there is warrant for asking each other and the people that are alive to pray for us. We, we ought to do that. Paul says, pray for me as I preach the gospel. If the saints in heaven are able to hear our prayers, if they're able to do that, they already know all about our needs anyway. So we don't really probably need to inform them about anything. This practice was started, though, by those who wanted to make those who are accustomed to praying to the dead or to a multitude of different demons feel more comfortable at church. They were having a hard time praying only to God and felt that God was maybe a little too remote and austere for them. That was the way people thought at the time when this stuff first started. So we can go to these, uh, these saints and they'll be a little bit more friendly. You know, the mother of Jesus will be a little bit more gentle than Jesus would be. If I can talk to her and then she can talk to him for me. And so you see, it's creating a distance between you and God. And such practices have no place in the church. Only what is holy and what God commands belongs in the church. We have to cast away our old worship and our pagan ways as, uh, at our baptism and not baptize those ways and bring them into the church with us. We leave our Father's house. And that's really how it got started. You go all the way back, you can see it in the Old Testament that they had the the different um, household idols. Those were very often images of ancestors and, and things, little talismans and things that were related to their ancestors. And they would look to these for, for their help and their security, and they would cling to these uh, these saints. And sometimes it was, they, they were not people that didn't believe in God. They were people that were using this as a way to get help from God or to relying on these, these ancestors. 
And that being said, the apostle had to instruct the Corinthians also not to bring in the elements of their pagan spirituality into worship. So that's a way of bringing pagan spirituality in as praying to saints. It's been around so long that people don't even think of it that way, but that's how it got started. But the Corinthians were, had just come out of paganism, so they didn't have a bunch of traditions in the church, but they brought pagan worship straight over into the worship of God. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul rebukes them for a number of things that they had inherited from paganism, including such things as sexual immorality, which was part of their worship. Fertility cults, right? They had obscene images, as we're told, and they would have fertility rites with temple prostitutes. There were prostitutes everywhere, temple prostitutes, religious prostitutes in Corinth. It was, uh, it was a religion that a lot of people rather enjoyed. They would go and have sex with prostitutes as part of their religion. And then they would have, with that, drunken and gluttonous feasting, which is, uh, was a very much a part of their worship as well. They would enjoy these big feasts where everyone would get drunk and lose their minds together. Uh, these are clearly things that are forbidden even outside of worship. Paul also corrects them for doing tongues and prophecies in a pagan style when he writes to the Corinthians. Tongues and prophecy, along with healing and other miraculous gifts, were signs of the apostles. Not only were the apostles able to do these things, but they were able to pass these gifts along to others as well in their day. So there were people that were prophesying and speaking tongues based on the gifts that the apostles had given them. These were given, these signs were given as evidence that the apostles were sent by Jesus to speak his word. Although not everyone had these gifts and no one had all of the gifts, it seems that the Corinthians wanted to have all of them. Paul's told them, you don't, you, not everybody has these gifts. And he tried to help them to deal with that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, he addresses this subject. He tells them that while these gifts are great things when used to edify others, the thing they ought to desire above all is what we talked about this morning, love. That's the thing that's most important. Right in the middle of that section in chapter 13. When gifts are pursued for self-aggrandizement, they are worthless to everyone, both to the one who uses them as well as the one who observes them. But Paul also confronts them for using counterfeit tongues and counterfeit prophecy, such as they had used. As he says, when you were Gentiles. If you look in the first part of chapter 12, he talks about what they did when they were Gentiles. You brought this out of your paganism. It would seem that in their strong desire to have the gifts, the gift of tongues when they didn't really have the gift, that, uh, and the gift of prophecy when they didn't really have that gift, that they had taken up counterfeit tongues and counterfeit prophecy such as they had when they were pagans. That kind that they had in their temples before they knew Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 and 2, and you can see where Paul warns them about this at the beginning of this long discussion on spiritual gifts. You need to understand that in pagan worship of the Greeks, a form of tongues and prophecies had been used for a long time. Tongues did not begin with the New Testament, not at all. There were tongues going way back. In fact, we have records from 2,000 years before Christ came, 
where people were speaking tongues, pagan style, in Egypt. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1 and 2, Paul shows how pagan spirituality is different than true spirituality. In pagan spirituality, the worshiper is taken over by the Spirit. You might say that they are possessed by the Spirit, so that the worshiper is out of control. Look at what he says. Now concerning spiritual gifts, or spirituals literally, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, you were outside of the church, carried away, notice that word, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. The idea is that the Spirit took control of the person. Quite different than what the Holy Spirit does. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit enables prophets to speak and worshipers to speak in language that they did not know. And, but He does not take them over so that they become just an organ of the Holy Spirit. In other words, like when the demons would do that and somebody would speak in a voice, it wasn't them talking, but it was the demon talking. When we do that, it's, it's not... The Spirit talking is us talking by enablement of the Spirit. It's what happens when a person is possessed by a demon, though, which is the pagan way of spirit, spirit filling. The Christian way is called concursus. Concursus happens when the Spirit works in us and enables us to speak for God or to speak in a language that we have never learned. The Holy Spirit, you see, produces self-control. But pagan spirits take away self-control so that the worshiper is not in control of himself, but he's controlled by the spirit so that they maybe laugh out of control or they fall on the floor and roll around or foam at the mouth or any kind of thing, bark like a dog, all kinds of different things that they do. They're out of control, but the fruit of the spirit is self-control. These are all behaviors that are found in ancient as well as modern pagan-style worship. Again, these things would go back years before Christ, where people would do that in their pagan worship. Paul goes on talking about tongues and prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. And in doing so, he virtually the things he says, he virtually eliminates all pagan tongues and prophecy from their worship by regulating the use of tongues that they did have and prophecy that they did have at that time. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he excludes their practice of everyone coming to church with their own psalm, their own teaching, their own tongue, their own revelation, their own interpretation. He says, how is it that you do this when you gather for worship? Like You need to do things in order. He excludes all speaking with tongues when there is no one present who can understand the language. In verse 28, speaking in tongues was meant to be a sign to unbelievers, which it was if an unbeliever came in and, you know, like a Russian guy comes in and he hears him talking in Russian. It's like, how did he do that? And, and, you know, they're, they're amazed. And there's a Chinese guy and he hears him talking in Chinese. They don't know Chinese. But it's just gibberish if one could not understand, no one could interpret or understand what was being said. So he says, if there's no interpreter, shut your mouth. He also excludes prophets all speaking at the same time, pointing out that, you know, you've got, you've got, you should only have, he says, you should only have two or three people speaking at all in any one service. And uh, if you're speaking at the same time, God's spirit is not leading you. Does one spirit have 
two people speak at the same time, in the same room in a public gathering where they're, where they're addressing the whole group and they're talking over each other. And that, that's not, there must be three or four different spirits if you've got that kind of thing going on for, for everyone that's speaking. Does this Holy Spirit interrupt himself with one person speaking and another person interrupts them? Uh, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. So there are churches today that have gotten into pagan spirit, this kind of pagan spirituality. Virtually all of their alleged tongue speaking is what they call angel languages that no one knows. Why do they always speak angel languages that no one knows when we don't even know if there was such a thing? I mean, we're told, though I speak with the tongues of angels, but he's like talking about if I speak in this really high lofty way, okay, maybe there are, but most of the time, we see that everyone understood in their own language when they spoke, that they spoke real languages. Why are there none of that kind of tongues, but it's always ones that you can't understand? Well, I think there's a good reason. They're counterfeit tongues. They're not of the Spirit of God. So if there's no interpreter, then we need to be quiet. If an angel's there and the angel can interpret, that's fine. Sometimes angels can be there. We don't know that they're angels. So if they can understand what you're saying, then, then fine. But otherwise... Don't speak angel languages in church. So this pagan tongue speaking and prophecy is a violation of the worship. Oh, yeah. And the prophecy, um, again, you know, tell them not to speak at the same time. But what is even worse that goes on in churches today is that people will claim to speak a prophecy and then it won't be fulfilled. Like someone will be pregnant. They'll say, oh, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a great leader or something like that. And then they have a daughter. And I, oh, oh, I got it wrong. And it's like, you got it wrong? You know, you know what the Bible says? If you get a prophecy wrong, if you claim to be speaking for God and you get it wrong, it says that you should die because you were speak, presuming to speak God's word to people when it wasn't God's word. So it's not a little, it's not a little thing. So this pagan tongue speaking and prophecy is a violation of the worship that God has given to his church. And it should not be tolerated. Such persons have done much harm in the church of Jesus Christ with false and distracting prophecies. Maybe someone gets a prophecy that they're supposed to do something and they go off and dedicate a bunch of their time and it wasn't even from God. Like we have to be very careful. We don't claim to be saying something is from God if it's not. Another form of unauthorized worship is the observance of holy days, the church calendar. In its worst form, This is a kind of spirituality that endeavors to commemorate the life of Jesus over the course of the calendar year. Instead of rejoicing in his finished work each Lord's Day and looking to him as our risen reigning Lord who has been been crucified and raised again from the dead, they go through periods in which they are, as it were, yearning for him to come. Like at Christmas time, we're waiting for Jesus to come. We're preparing for Jesus to come in our church calendar exercises. And then you have Lent where you're fasting and denying yourself as you wait for him to be crucified and then raised again at Easter time in, in an artificial sort of thing because Jesus has, Jesus has already been raised. <laughs> That's the good news that we preach. We don't do a drama where we put ourselves into a mode where we're waiting for him to do something that he's already done. 
It's not what God has given us to do in our worship. It's artificial. And there are all kinds of ceremonies that are performed around these things, like uh, ashes on Ash Wednesday or, or whatever, lighting candles on a wreath. And this candle is a prophecy candle. This candle is the Jesus candle. And this candle, what, all that sort of thing. And the issue here is not, again, whether people find these ceremonies meaningful or whether the ones who engage in them find them useful. The question is, who authorized this? Who commanded this? Where did this come from? God's word, we don't have to answer that question if we, we just have to know whether it came from God. We don't have to figure out, oh, this came from this ancient practice that was back here and then trace, trace all. You don't have to do that. People do that sometimes. You can do that. It's interesting history to find out where they came from. I did a little of that when I mentioned about praying to saints. It's kind of an obvious one. But we don't, we don't have to know where it came from. We have to know whether it came from God. That's what we have to know. So God's word is our only rule of faith and obedience. And none of these ceremonies and holy days are appointed for us to observe in Scripture. What does that mean then? That they're forbidden? Because we only do what God has commanded. Simply because they're not commanded and the commandment is that we're not to add or take away from what God has commanded in worship. I would add that the observance of holy days also has the tendency that Jesus spoke about to take away from what God has commanded. It has been my observation that the more man-appointed holy days are observed, the more the Lord's Day, which Christ did appoint, is neglected. Some churches will even skip preaching around Sunday to have a cantata or something, or individual, or to do their passion play or whatever, uh, Easter time. Individuals who would not dream of missing Christmas have no problem ignoring the Lord's Day, especially when it's around Christmas, because we're busy with our Christmas activities. And you remember a few years ago, we had church and we invited people from other churches because the church was on Sunday and churches closed on Sunday because it was Sunday. And so we invited people to come that wanted to worship on that day that didn't have, and we did have some visitors that came. Besides that, these holy days often lead to sinful behavior. For example, Mardi Gras is a time of fornication and drunkenness before the Lenten feast. People will sometimes assert that God wants us to have such holy days. Why? Because, well, didn't he appoint them in the Old Testament? Didn't he appoint such days to commemorate the events in the Old Testament that had happened? If he did it for those events... How much more ought we to do it now in the New Testament for the greater events that we have? But the Old Testament is described in the New as a time of shadows. Shadows of things that were actually yet to come, even though they were done in response to things that had happened. Those things themselves were types of things that were yet to be fulfilled and happen in the future. The ceremonies and holy days then were all shadows, but now we have the real thing. Christ has come in real history. Now that he has come, our worship is simplified because now the core of worship is what? Proclamation of the gospel and joy in the gospel, praising God for what he has done, not reenacting that with, with a, a calendar thing. Rather than focusing on ceremonies, we focus on our Savior who has been revealed in history. Here's a very important thing to think about. If God wanted us to observe holy days and ceremonies related to Jesus and his work, 
wouldn't he have appointed those in the New Testament? Why, when the apostles established the order of the church, did they not appoint these days? Why aren't they mentioned? As soon as God brought his people out of Egypt and they had the different things that happened, Moses commanded them to observe the different things that he wanted them to observe, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. He didn't wait for 400 years and someone to say, oh, you know, we ought to do the Feast of Tabernacles. We ought to make tents and do this again. They, they didn't do that. That's not how God did it. Instead, we have Paul saying, Galatians, indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which by nature are not God's, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. You're going back to the old shadows. He says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. It was as if Jesus had not come in their minds. They were doing the shadows of him instead of celebrating that what he has done. The fact that the observance of all these seasons is so widespread in the church should not cause us to suppose that it must be okay. It's easy to do that, isn't it? If it's widespread, it must be okay. That's not true. As I've shown you, there were only three kings out of 40-something kings that were in Israel and Judah under whose administration regulation, regulated worship was followed. If you follow regulated worship, you can expect that you will be in the minority. It has always been so. It has never not been so. I don't think there's ever a time in history that it's not been so. And that's certainly the case with the next form of unauthorized worship that we're going to look at. And that is the worship of God through the use of arts. Whether it be dramatic presentations, multimedia productions, interpretive dance, uninspired poetry or the most common one, musical performances. Once again, the problem with these is that God did not appoint them in the New Testament for New Testament worship. God says to us, who required this of you? If God wanted us to follow the way things are done in a culture we are ministering to, then the apostles would have, what what would they have done when they wanted to present the gospel? They would have put on a play, wouldn't they? That's what the Greeks did and they were ministering to Greeks, they had all their religious plays where the gods would be presented in a a drama. And they didn't do that. They, They manifestly did not do that. Instead, they emphasized preaching. And even the preaching that they did was not in the Greek style where they had this fancy kind of oratory thing that they did, but it was in simple proclamation, setting forth of Christ. And as for musical instruments... The first time we have the appearance of musical instruments in worship after the apostles was in the 7th century. A lot of people are surprised when they learn that. But they did not use instruments in the church until the first record we have is in the 7th century. The churches who claim to follow ancient traditions certainly cannot claim musical instruments had come from the ancient fathers. In the 7th century, that's when they first appeared. I mean, even like uh, Thomas Aquinas, who was in the 13th century, they were so rare still in his day that he spoke of the custom of the church. And he said, but our church does not make use of musical instruments such as harps and psalteries in the divine praises for fear of seeming to Judaize. 
That was in the 13th century. They still weren't using instruments widespread so that he could say that. We don't do it. Many of the reformers like Calvin removed instruments because they had gotten in by the time of Calvin. There was a resurgence of their youths in Presbyterian churches uh, who had been removed at the Reformation, uh, but there was a resurgence of them in the 1800s. Uh, for example, I found a, a book in uh, John Dow's an old uh, minutes book of the, of the uh, Presbyterian Church in Canada. And I found there where they, the church, one of the churches in Canada in Toronto had gotten an organ. And the other churches were opposing this and saying that this should not be done. And they had a big uh, discussion about it, whether they should allow it or not, whether they should be disciplined. They'd spent all this money to put in this big organ and everything. And that was in the late 1800s. So what I'm talking about is not something that you go, oh, that's really weird. I mean, we say that today, but it certainly wasn't uh, in the past. And it is not just that they did not use instruments over the centuries. The fathers of the church not only did not use them, but they wrote against them like Aquinas did, lest we Judaize. is something that belonged, in other words, to the old covenant, not the new covenant. People say, well, there's, there's instruments in the Bible. And sure, there, there are. But if you check it out, you'll find that indeed it was only the Levites at the temple who were authorized to play instruments, certain instruments. And it was only in connection with the sacrifices. It was part of the shadows. When you have shadows, you need music to make the shadows more real and effective. If you have the real thing, then all of the things that you add are take away from the substance. But now to refuse to employ them makes you somewhat of an oddity. We have had people decide that our church was not a place that they wanted to worship because we don't use instruments. And hand in hand with this matter of, is the songs that we sing. God has given us a complete song book in our Bible, 150 Psalms. They are a complete collection of inspired songs given by God's authority. When, when we have such a collection and when we're commanded to sing in the New Testament, what warrant do we have for composing songs that we're going to sing? If we're told these are the we here's a collection of songs, we're given a collection of songs. We're told to sing songs. Do we automatically assume that we're supposed to supplement the ones that God has given us that are actually inspired? It's really no different than we're told to read scriptures, which means writings. So does that mean that we're to add to the writings that that God has given us our own writings and read those as well? Or maybe even almost completely read only those and because the ones that God wrote, they're kind of old and we, they don't make as much sense to us and we like these new ones better. So is, is, that what, is that what God means when he just says to read Scripture? Because he doesn't specify and say the Holy Scripture that the prophets gave by inspiration. He doesn't do that. So we just assume when it says read Scripture that it's the ones he gave us, not any writings. Not any songs. It's the ones that, if we didn't have a collection, then we would, of course, have to write them. But what warrant do we have to make another collection? When God tells us to sing songs, surely he means to sing the songs that he gave us. Just as when he tells us to read and expound the word, the word that we're to expound is the Holy Scriptures. The addition of our own songs and musical performance in place of plain singing 
has also caused many problems in the church. It's created division. Do you see that? It's a terrible problem, really. Like different age groups and people from different socioeconomic backgrounds want different styles of music. And when you've got, you know, like um, one group wants a, wants a guy on a banjo, another one wants a big, um, a big symphony, and another one says, oh, I don't like that. And, uh, you know, they want, they want something different. And so you've got all these different styles going on. It turns our eyes away from Christ, and it turns our eyes to performance. Where are we going to have the best performance the way that we like it? Sometimes instrumental pieces are played that don't even have any singing at all. It has made the church into a showcase for talent rather than a place of worship. And let me add here that there is nothing wrong with musical performance and arts and poetry and all of those things. It's just not what we do when we assemble together to worship God. We're limited then to what we've commanded. But during the week, go, go to it. It's, it's not a problem. Do your talent. Let everyone see. It's great. And many of the songs that are written and that are added are unworthy of the Lord. They misrepresent him. They even tell lies about him. They have a wrong emphasis, the same as idols do. Who is able to compose a praise for God that would be suitable for use in worship? Besides that, they do not give us a proper balance in the way that they represent the Lord. I have always found it interesting if you look at different time periods, you can almost, like I can almost always pick, if I see a hymn, I can say, oh, 1800s. <laughs> you can just tell because it's got a certain way about it. It's always about my experience with Jesus. You know, heaven came down, glory filled my soul, you know, whatever, that, that kind of thing, victory in Jesus, that, that sort of thing. Likewise, if you look at all uninspired songs and you compare them to the Psalms, you'll find that they tend to neglect the praise of God's holy wrath and judgment something that our society and does not want to talk about. They emphasize grace and mercy, which is a good thing to talk about, but they ignore wrath and judgment. And without wrath and judgment, what is grace and mercy? The terrible fruit of that is that Christians today tend to look lightly at sin and judgment. Many Christians, if we've been worshiping God in that distorted way, then we're going to deny hell. We're going to say, oh, I don't like that. I don't like to talk about that. I don't, I don't think that's a good thing because we haven't been worshiping God for that. The terrible, fault of, the terrible fruit of that is that Christians today will deny what God has said in, about these things. And many see Jesus as one who helps us reach our potential rather than a re- redeemer of sin. He's just there to lift me up and to, to help me along. There are many other art forms and enhancements and entertainments that have been introduced in the worship of God. Here's an example I collected a few years ago of an emergent church called West Winds. I've used this illustration with you before. Uh, Jim Wilson is a leader at this church, and he says very proudly, At West Winds, worship services are organic, earthly, and multi-layered. They don't use a painting or a poem to illustrate a point or a drama as an element of a progressive presentation. Instead, see, they've even gone beyond that. They weave several layers into a multi-sensory experience. The music, the art, the lighting effects, the powerful monologues, and the visual props form a tapestry that prepares the congregation to meet God at the communion table. 
Worship experiences are moment collections that we design to increase the incidences of bumping into the presence of God. So they're trying to make something that get people to bump into God more when they're worshiping. Uh, Martoya says, we hope we are creating moments where people can't help but experience God. At a service a few months ago, before, West Winds served communion to break a week of fasting. Instead of highlighting Jesus' suffering on the cross, as they did at the Good Friday service, they focused on one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That day's moment collection incorporated the smell of baking bread, the worshippers' own hunger pangs, poetry readings, fast food commercials playing on television sets throughout the auditorium, art on the big screen, and music. The music included Breathe, a song with lyrics acknowledging that Jesus is a Christian's daily bread and affirming that believers are desperate for him. These elements didn't give a context for the pastor to preach his sermon. Rather, they and the pastor's words created a moment collection, a context for Jesus to speak to his people. Now you can see how people would like this. And you can see how it would help them feel like they had connected to God. Wasn't that wonderful, they would say. Israel did that with the golden calf. When they were gathered around the golden calf, were the people like, oh man, we got to go around the golden calf. You know, they, were, they were breaking off their earrings to make the golden calf. They were excited. They were fired up. And they were dancing around the calf. They were all there. They were very enthusiastic. It was great to them. The one who wasn't pleased was the one that they were supposed to be worshiping. He was the one that wasn't pleased. He was infuriated. And so it is today. The place like Westwinds, however sincere, however enthusiastic the worshipers may be. He says the same thing he said in Mark 7, 7. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But let us not forget what our Lord wants. He wants us to behold his glory in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. He wants our delight to be in Jesus himself, not in the way that Jesus is presented in a performance at church. In the New Testament, he has appointed very simple worship, worship that is aimed at drawing attention to the Savior instead of to the ceremonies. It is foolish to debate about whether we think what about whether we think this is the best way for Christ to be seen in the way that I just described. It's the way that he appointed. And our attention needs to be, as we saw last week, in continuing steadfastly in the things that he has appointed. This is the way that we'll find blessing. It'll do little good for us to stick outwardly to what God has commanded, though, if we too are drawing near with our lips when our heart is far away. You can do that with regulated Worship just as well as you can do it with unregulated worship. It might even be better to worship God through the golden calf with a full heart than to worship God with an empty heart in the way that he has appointed. But neither of those choices should be options for us. We're called to worship the Lord God with our whole heart in the way that he has commanded, without the golden calf, but in the very simple way that he has appointed. And you see, if our worship seems to us 
if regulated worship that God commanded seems to us to be dry, if it's dry to us and empty, then we're tempted then to say we need to embellish this. And maybe if we get some other things going on here, we can, we can ramp it up. But you see, when you do that, you're going in the wrong direction. What needs to happen is what you think about Jesus, your love for Christ and, and your delight in the work that he did. That's what needs to grow. Not how the worship is done, if it's being done according to God. Not adding to that. That's not what needs to change. You're, you're moving the problem from here to how it's done. And if God has told us, do it in this simple way, and I'm dry in my worship, I need to get on my knees and I need to look to the Lord to reveal himself and his glory to me and to show me, give me delight in, in what he has done. So please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, now we, we are humbled because we know, Lord, that we have a great Savior who is revealed in the gospel And we know, Lord, that many times our hearts are dry and barren. And we kind of need some music in the background to kind of pick us up and kind of need some uh, light, a light show and some uh, multimedia and various things to kind of get get us ramped up and, and, and more excited about things. But Father, we know that that's not what you have appointed. You have appointed for us to come before you in simplicity so that our focus is on Christ and who he is and what he has done and not on the show. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have discernment and wisdom about how we worship you. Father, give us ability to, to truly benefit from the worship that you have appointed. Help us, Lord, to be true to your word. Help us to prepare and to, as we saw last week, to be steadfast, to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and the breaking of the bread, and in prayers. We pray, Lord, that we would do these things with zeal, and that we would find blessing from them. Lord, we see that your church has continually deviated from what you appointed, and we know that it's a temptation, it's a pressure that's often placed on us, and we pray that we would not give way to it, we also pray, though, that you would help us, Lord, to be gracious in our, um, in our uh, evaluation of others, Lord. We, we want to speak plainly about the wrong in it, but we also pray that we would, be, uh, we would recognize the difference between something that is quite egregious, like the West Winds thing that I read about, or some of the other things, versus something that is only a minor um, violation and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to, be, um, to be wise and discerning and that we would not make mountains out of molehills. But we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your will. And most of all, we pray that you would help us in our worship to find our delight in our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.